I thought we could begin with, with a prayer. This was actually a suggestion we received on Twitter today that we restart with a prayer, so we're going to follow that suggestion. <laughs> um, so I thought we'd just do an Our Father and a Glory Be. You know, join me. Our Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So, thank you all for coming. Um, I just want to say a couple of words of introduction before we jump into the panel proper. Um, first, I want to thank the CIC for hosting us and for co-sponsoring the event. Um, both Jose Mena and I are former Leonine Fellows here at the CIC, and our poetry editor for this issue, Bria Sanford, is in the first Leonine Forum class in New York, so we have some nice connections there, and we're very grateful to them for hosting us tonight. Um, I also want to thank the panelists, um, especially Brandon, who came the furthest. Um, he came all the way from Pittsburgh, so <laughs> buy him a drink later, maybe. And uh, <laughs> Jose and, and uh, Josh both live in the area. And uh, thank you all for coming as well. Um, so I just wanted to say a brief word about what Fair Forward is, in case you don't know. Some of you may be familiar with it, but some of you not so much. Um, so just a little bit of a background here on it. Um, five years ago... Uh, me and some others who I went to college with, uh, and some others as well across the country, helped to co-found this journal called Fair Forward. Uh, the idea was that it'd be written by people who had recently or somewhat recently graduated from college um, who were Christian. It was by design ecumenical from the start, so we were open to writing from Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox writers. Um, and we published seven issues quarterly. Uh, a lot of what we published was sort of arts and culture stuff, um, book reviews, movie reviews, talked about music and TV, and we also did um, other feature-length feature length pieces on things like Ambition. We actually had a panel here about two years ago now uh, that was on Ambition. That was based on a couple of the articles from that, from that uh, journal at that time. Uh, so we published for about seven, seven issues quarterly for a couple of years, and then we stopped publishing for more than one reason. But we were recently given the resources to uh, do another issue, uh, so we came back for issue eight. This is issue eight here, uh, as you may have seen when you came in. It's out for sale outside this, through the CIC. Uh, issue eight is basically a bigger issue than, we do, than we've done before. It's more pages. As opposed to being quarterly, it's meant to be um, kind of a big issue for the whole uh, year from the past year, 2017. Um, and it has more articles, more content. Um, basically, we just, me and the other editors, basically asked our friends who were writers to write for us and Many of them agreed, um, and we gave them a pretty free hand in writing what they wanted to write about, and that was kind of what gave rise to the content that's actually in there today. Um, there is a diversity of content in the issue, which we'll talk about later. There is also a kind of a thematic thread that runs through many of the articles, which is relevant to what we're talking about tonight, and I'll introduce that theme in a second. Um, but first, I just want to say a couple things. Um, I realize, of course, that everyone here, including myself, is a man. Uh, Fair Forward is not an all-male enterprise. Uh, we have both uh, male and female writers and male and female editors. Uh, it happened to be the case that this group of people made sense for this panel. The three of them wrote articles that were thematically linked, and two of them obviously live in the area. So that's why it was this group that we chose. But there is uh, lots of other content in there by both genders or sexes. Um, we, actually, we actually have some writers in the audience tonight who wrote who are not up here. 
Um, so I just want to acknowledge them. If I miss anyone, I'm sorry, but I know for sure Eve Tushnet is here. If you just want to stand up and say hi. <laughs> Eve did a book review for us, and Tim Marcados did a movie review. And uh, Susanna Black, did she did she arrive yet? Is she around? No. Well, there is someone I think who will be here named Susanna Black, <laughs> who wrote a feature article for us and also is one of the editors. So um, if you have any questions about their pieces, you can ask them afterwards. And Susanna would also be able to answer questions about the editorial process if you have questions about that. Um, so with that being said, I just want to say a couple more words here. So as I said, there's a diversity of content, but there is also a kind of thematic unity to many of the pieces. Uh, you could describe it as um, many of the articles treat a reality called liberalism from a kind of either critical standpoint or a standpoint of trying to move beyond it. Um, some of you may be familiar with this already, but liberalism is a term with many meanings. Uh, the meaning that it has for the writers of this issue doesn't refer to, say, the Democratic Party or uh, the American political left in the sense that, say, American conservative would use the term. It refers rather to those sort of habits of mind, institutions, uh, theses in political philosophy and theology that uh, are broadly characteristic of both sides of the political spectrum in America, both the right and the left. Um, so this is an attempt, so a, lot of the articles in the, a lot of the articles in here are an attempt to sort of critique that or think about how we might move beyond that. Uh, and that will come up more, the more of the definitional questions will probably come up in the course of the panel. But I'll let them speak to that. I just want to say um, there also are issues available for sale through the CIC. As I said, many of, the, many of the articles are about liberalism, but many of them aren't, actually. We have a number, number of issues, number of articles in the issue that deal with other topics. We have some on book reviews that are not related to this topic at all. We have um, a piece on by Leah Lebresco, who some of you may know, Leah Lebresco Sargent now, about uh, stoicism and some recent books that were released that tried to popularize stoicism and how Christians should think about that. A piece on the opioid epidemic, we have a, a review of three, album, three albums by the Beach Boys. We have a piece by me on Blessed John Henry Newman. So a lot of it is not uh, about this topic as well. So that, all that goes to say, if you care about this conversation, which probably you do or you wouldn't be here, you should buy the issue. But if you don't care about this conversation, you should also buy the issue because there's plenty in there that you might also find interesting. Mm -hmm. So we have, as I said, we have issues for sale outside. Um, I would really encourage you to buy one if you haven't. Um, that's the way that we can support uh, the writers and, you know, in the sense of publishing more of this stuff. And um, we, we won't be able to continue without your support. So we do ask you to consider buying an issue. If we run out of the ones that are at the CIC, we can also sell them online. We do sell them online. So you can visit our website at fareforward.com. It's F-A-R-E-F-W-D.com. I can give you that uh, address again later if you want. And um, if you buy them tonight on the website or tomorrow morning on the website, we will, we will be able to ship them out tomorrow in the mailing service to you, so you'll get them pretty quickly. So with that, oh, I also want to say there is a reception afterwards, so if you want to join us for the reception, we'd be more than uh, happy to continue the conversation. So with that, I want to introduce the panelists. First, we have Jose Mena. Jose has served as the web editor for Fair Forward, and his writing has appeared in Fair Forward, as well as in Ethica Politica and the Catholic Herald. He was a co-founder of the Tradinista Project, and has contributed, contributed to the Josias. His article on the issue is entitled, After Liberalism, the Politics of the Common Good. Brandon McGinley is a writer and editor in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His writing has appeared in print in the National Review, the Human Life Review, the Catholic Herald, the Scottish Catholic Observer, and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and online at First Things Public Discourse and The Week, among other venues. 
He has also contributed to and edited books by, uh, for our Sunday visitor at Catholic Publishers. Brandon and his wife, Katie, have three young children. His piece is entitled Detachment Parenting. And Josh Alexikos is a recent graduate of Dartmouth College, where I also went, clearly making him the superior panelist. He, he currently lives and works in DC. His piece on this issue, Fair Forward, is a review of Carl Polanyi's The Great Transformation. So um, how is this going to work is I've asked each of the three speakers, starting with Jose, going to Brandon, and then going to Josh, to speak for about 10 minutes or so about their article. And then I'll ask them a few questions, we'll have a moderated discussion, and then we'll do Q&A. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jose, and uh, yeah, take it away, Jose. Okay, great. I'm Jose Mena. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the CIC for hosting this event. I want to thank Peter for inviting me to speak. Again, the title of my essay is After Liberalism Toward a Politics of the Common Good. So this is a definitional essay. What we're after here is what is the common good and what is liberalism? What do we mean when we use these terms and think about these terms, and hopefully by engaging that question, we can come to a greater clarity in our thinking about the present moment in Catholic thought. So many of you are probably aware that there are many intra-Catholic debates currently about the relationship between the Catholic Church and what we might call the liberal order. I'd characterize there as being two main periods of thought between the Catholic Church and the liberal state or the liberal order. There's an early period of skepticism, roughly between the French Revolution and the Second Vatican Council, where there are many magisterial pronouncements by multiple popes saying, I don't know, freedom of speech, this is bad. What you've done in, in France with your laicite and your secularism, this is bad. Okay, and then there's, then there's a shift uh, beginning primarily with the thought of John Courtney Murray and especially in Anglophone writers toward a greater comity between uh, the liberal order and Catholic thought. And this is especially against the backdrop of the Soviet menace. And now I think there's more of a reevaluation of both of these periods and a question of are these two systems, the Catholic Church, Catholic social teaching, and the liberal order as compatible as maybe we've thought that they are over the last 60 years? And so I, by engaging what liberalism really is and what the common good really is, I hope to address this question. Okay. Uh, by the way, just a quick note, by the liberal order, I don't necessarily mean the United States. I don't necessarily mean the European Union. I mean to define three notes of the liberal order that serve as a kind of test. You can use these notes to understand this society is liberal or not in certain ways. Okay, so yes, there are ways in which uh, maybe Theresa May's United Kingdom or Viktor Orban's Hungary are less liberal than regimes they're reacting against, but hopefully using these notes, you can identify that Donald Trump's America is a highly liberal society. In order to understand my criticisms and my evaluation of liberalism, you have to first understand what a common good is. We tend to think of common goods like pizzas, okay? I order a pizza, it's cut into slices, I give you a slice, I give you a slice, I give you a slice, and we share a pizza in that way. The problem is that a pizza is not really shared. I have my piece over here. You have your piece over there. And we don't really share those pizzas. It's diminished by being shared. What we're talking about when we share a pizza is aggregates of individual goods. I have my pizza here and your pizza there. Okay, a common good is like the family, where I have my fatherhood and her motherhood and my childhood and his parenthood, and we share them. 
and we enjoy them together, and it's not diminished by being shared. Okay, it's like playing in an orchestra together, playing a symphony. I can't take my part of the symphony home with me and enjoy it alone. It's only enjoyed in that act of doing it together. Okay, it's a harmony in that way. It's like the truth, right? We enjoy the truth, and the truth isn't broken up into small little truth parts that, that you take home and enjoy by yourself, and you lose it, you consume it on your own, okay? So the, con the claim, the proposal that the church makes is that in political life, there is a common good. Not as the aggregate of individual goods, but as a truly common good. And this common good is the peace. And so what is peace? Peace is not the absence of conflict. It's not a Mexican standoff where, all, where we're all pointing guns at each other. It's not nuclear deterrence where it's propped up only by the threat of violence. It's a harmonious cooperation where we're all serving to build up one another in virtue and elevate one another toward God. Now, that's also true if you're not a Christian, you know, build up one another toward God even in an implicit way, right, through the exercise of virtue, even if you don't have supernatural revelation, okay? So it's, it's open to everyone. But it's not something that's inherently violent, okay? It's creative, it's active, it's this harmonious ordered activity of God's creation praising him together, okay? It's the, it's the canticle that we pray in the Liturgy of the Hours. It's snow and frost, bless the Lord. It's cold and ice, bless the Lord. Okay, it's the song of everything that's ordered to God, praising him and working together to serve him. So that's, that's the vision. That's the proposal. Okay, that's what we should strive for. So now we want to talk about liberalism, the liberal order. What is it and does it live up to that vision? Uh, I'm going to claim that it doesn't. So I'm going to claim... <laughs> I'm going to claim that there are three notes of the liberal order without which it cannot be understood. Okay, the first note is economic liberalism or capitalism. Okay, I'm going to claim that this note gives us a society of greed. Okay, we have to first understand that capitalism uh, is not something eternal. It's not something that's always been with us. Simply because Rome had markets and Athens had trade does not mean that those were capitalist societies. Okay, capitalism came into being with modernity at a specific time in a specific place brought on by specific uh, technological advances, okay? It's the imposition of a wage society against a society that is not waged, okay? And everyone who is an apologist for capitalism will tell you that it's a society of private vice that's allegedly supposed to seek out the common good, the good of all. Now, what I will say about that is that the good that it secures, even if it is the aggregate good of everyone, we're talking about individual private goods. Even if the rising tide lifts all boats, even if they make the pie bigger, we're still talking about a pie that you cut up and you get a slice and you get a slice and I get a slice. We're not talking about a common good. We're not talking about an economic life that is enjoyed commonly. We're not talking about a political life that is enjoyed as a common good. Okay, even if, even if materially, in material terms, in aggregate material terms, everyone's situation is improved, it does so through an inherently antagonistic and sectarian process. Okay, when I pursue my own good as a business owner, I'm doing so 
precisely against the good of whoever I'm competing with in the industry, right? I'm doing so to put the other guy out of business. I'm doing so to compete with him for profit, right? It's a sectarian clash of interests. So that's the essential way in which capitalism interferes with this vision of the common good. Now, the other thing that I will say is that bringing with it this transformation of society into the wage society uh, comes with it the commodification of a number of forms of human relationships. Um, we all know that we can't, we're not going to really be able to raise our children. Uh, we're going to have to work two jobs in order to, you know, own a house and, and uh, sustain a mortgage and all of that. And so we're going to have to pay someone to raise our children for us. We all know that, that our grandparents are going to be, we're going to have to pay someone to care for them when they're older. Right, our parents and grandparents, when I'm old, I'm going to pay someone to care for me. In the past, these were human relationships. These were not relationships of where I buy and pay for them. Okay, so even if you're not coming after capitalism, capitalism is coming after you. <laughs> Through the transformation of all of these human relationships into mechanisms of buying and selling. Okay, without regard for human well-being. Okay. The second note of the liberal order is juridical liberalism, a society of indifference. In this respect, we should think of our First Amendment rights. Now, I do want to say explicitly that uh, religion in this respect is exempt from this analysis. It's a very different kind of right uh, in the Catholic thinking, and I don't mean to treat of it here. Uh, but when we think of rights like speech, like press, like guns, like marriage, the point of these First Amendment rights, as far as we see it, is to be totally neutral or indifferent to the content of the act. Okay, all that matters is that you choose the act that we're setting aside a right for. It doesn't matter what you choose. It just matters that you chose it. You can even choose murder, right? So there's no normative standard in any liberal regime for there to be an understanding of what, of what evils or for tolerating evils are. So we increase these spaces where there's just no moral evaluation of any of the acts being considered. And ultimately, I'll contend, what, what happens is, because we're fallen human beings, we tend to choose the bad option. Anytime you increase indifference in a space, we don't pick the virtuous option, we pick the bad option. Um, what I think, how I think Catholics should respond to this is through Aquinas and Martin Luther King Jr. There's no such law as an unjust law. So we should recognize that there's a whole corpus of law that's been promulgated from all eternity that binds on us now, that's written in the hearts of everyone. That's not that esoteric. Um, it, everyone can really understand that you know murder is wrong and adulter adultery is wrong and so on. And to recognize that there are limits on these types of things which we pretend to be indifferent to. What I'll close with, the third note of the liberal uh, order that I, that I identify is theological liberalism or society of idolatry. I distinguish it beca be because um, I think while it does affect everyone, um, the idea that there's no positive truth in religion has a special relevance to Christians because we're the bearers of special revelation, okay? Um, this has a, a special impacts on our, on our efforts with re regard to the liturgy, with regard to catechesis, with regard to sacramental discipline. Um, and I think that, um, you know, 
just being able to embed ourselves in sound doctrine, sound praxis is really important in against this idea of sort of private rational judgment on all theological principles. Um, there's a common foundation here, a common thread, which you can see through these three notes of the liberal order, which is which are will and choice. This idea that we're sort of atomistic, quasi-Newtonian particles, just embedded with pure will and pure choice. You know, I think that that liberates us, as I was saying before, just to indulge our basest sort of passions. And really, there's this idea in scripture and in the tradition that whenever you're not serving the true God, you're serving false gods. And I bring this out in my essay to suggest that we're, we really are serving Moloch, Mammon, the demon of lust, in, in the ways that we uh, move forward in our society. I, I, re, you know, I think it's evident in the things that we do moving forward that we really are yoked to some uh, ungodly forces uh, and that we've, through these mechanisms of choosing not to judge the justness of the thing that we're doing, whether it's a contract or whether it's a right, uh, we've allowed ourselves to fall into the dominion of some really dark things. So against this, I propose a society of peace, as I started with, and I would, and I would close with the idea that politics is a natural science. This isn't a conversation just for Christians. Uh, this, is, this is open to everyone who's, who's endowed with reason and can speak reasonably about principles of the natural law. So thank you. So as, uh, as Peter uh, said, my name is Brandon McGinley. I'm a writer and editor in Pittsburgh. And uh, the fact that I have uh, three young children is actually relevant to my essay because I wanted to push back against the idea that uh, one necessarily um, cleaves more tightly to the present order of things, to the present liberal order of things, when one becomes a parent. Um, rather than sketching um, any sort of a, a post-liberalism as Jose did, I wanted rather to try to clear the very first hurdle to even considering the possibility of opposing liberalism, which is, is it prudent? Is it prudent to, is it even prudent even to say that we ought to oppose liberalism or that we ought to uh, begin to think about what a new post-liberal order will look like? And it is sometimes suggested that it is not prudent, especially, it is said, for a parent because once you have children, you immediately become more invested in the stability of the present order of things. Therefore, it no longer makes sense. Even if you had grand ideas before, once children come along, that's it. You gotta, you gotta hang it up um, because uh, now, that, now that you have this responsibility to earn a paycheck, to get your kids into a good college, to ensure that your children will be, uh, will have a, a chance to succeed. You can't, you got to put away uh, anything that, uh, that is too radical. Um, we don't want to upset the apple cart. It's all right when you're single and you hot-blooded and, you know, you can, not worrying about the future, but then, you know, once kids come along. The question I asked myself then was not, what do I think? I know what I think, or at least a pretty good idea of what I think about liberalism. But why do I think it? Why even after having three children? Why even after 
thinking about education savings accounts and all that, why do I still think, in fact, I think I, I think even more that we ought to uh, that we ought to look very skeptically at the order in which we have grown up. Um, and and there are two reasons that I went this route. There are two reasons I wanted to ask this question. One um, is frankly the the um, the the one is rhetorical in the sense that the narrative that I'm countering, the narrative I just described, that you become more invested in the present order once once kids come along, um, is itself a kind of subjective narrative. And so, in order to counter that, I wanted to give my own narrative. I want to talk about why I think what I think and not just what I think. Um, and because otherwise it might seem too detached to use the the word from the uh, from the title, um, but it was also good for me personally to learn a little bit a little bit about my own mind. It's easy to know what you think, but to actually probe why have I come to these conclusions? What is it about my circumstances that has actually um, has actually made these things clearer to me? I think than they were in the past, um, and uh, and 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 there there's something good about looking at one's own circumstances and saying, why am I not having the reaction that everyone expects of me in the circumstances that I'm in? And when I did this, I, um, I thought about many ways of going about it, but it became clear to me that when I thought about my own story, my own story of being raised in a Catholic family, of losing the practice of the faith, not all at once, but slowly through time, through missing mass here and there, and then missing mass a third of the time, then missing mass half the time, then by the time I was in college, I had become the Christmas and Easter person that I used to sneer at. Um, how did that happen? I didn't decide one day, my family didn't decide one day, oh, no, we're done with this mass thing. No. It was a slow process where first, well, we're throwing a party on Saturday night. We were Saturday night mass people, so we can't go on Saturday, and we're going to be tired on Sunday, so do you know what? We're just going to let it go. Sooner or later, it becomes, well, you know what? Uh, our weekend, we really have to do some shopping. <coughs> Christmas is coming up. It's going to be a huge mess, and we just don't have time. And it becomes, you need to, it, it be, mass goes from the default to, to the exception, to the you need to have a very free weekend to make time for mass. And I thought about, how does that happen? Um, and the, 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 the undervalued, the underappreciated virtue that came to mind is detachment. And the vice, of course, is attachment. And it's not, it doesn't have to be this kind of grotesque lusting after, after, uh, after mammon. It can just be a little bit. It can just be a little bit of, well, we have these things to do that are broadly speaking, secular in nature, and we're going to elevate them in importance just this one week, and then it becomes two and three, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I realized the things that pulled me away from the faith were related to this idea of attachment. Um, uh, the little things, like I said, like, like not going to mass, like in, in high school when I would um, publicly um, denigrate an evangelical friend of mine because I knew that he had a bit of a, a bit of a, a less subtle way of talking about the faith, so I could increase my social standing, increase my attachment to social standing, by um, by sneering at him, and he was kind enough and Christian enough that he maintained friendship with me. Good for him. <laughs> um, and 
and so and so this so yeah so this idea of attachment then became the kind of linchpin for for my article and i also realized honestly in thinking about it that in my own work my day job i work for ewtn as a uh, as an editor for the um for the ewtn publishing division and i thought about the what i what i had uh, done when it came to working uh, on the works of Mother Angelica, the founder of EWTN. She writes a lot about detachment and hadn't heard that word very much. And her own story is a lot of things, a lot of things that we would, would be considered quite imprudent when it came to the way she started her organization. And seeing that then, seeing that faith and providence and that detachment from kind of worldly respect pay off, uh, not in the sense of increasing worldly respect, but in the sense of kind of spiritual benefits was really was really um, was something that I, I think I needed to see, and it helped to help me to, to cut that idea to coalesce in my mind. And so I realized that this idea of detachment, when it came to the article, when it came to working on the article, was both true of myself and rhetorically effective. Because frankly, once you think about attachment in those little subtle things that become bigger things and bigger things, it eventually lead to you elevating those false idols. Um, that's something that's recognizable to everybody. Everybody can recognize something in their life to which they are attached that can easily distract them from the faith. And I certainly can, could, could uh, continue to give you a laundry list of those things. And I think everyone can realize, if you reflect on those for more than a moment, how they accumulate as a, a cumulative effect of those over time. Um, and so uh, in the article then I connect this story of, of realizing how I lost the faith, both to my own convictions now about parenthood, where I don't want to, I don't want to give any impression whatsoever that we are to ever to elevate anything over the practice of the faith, that, um, that anything, everything, uh, um, when, especially when it comes to you know, worldly goods, worldly respect, accumulation of any kind, is, is, is not to be, is, uh, should never get in the way of the way we think about the faith. Um, and connect that then to what I think has been the story of, of Catholicism, certainly at least in the Western world, over the past few generations, where as, a, as an entire faith community, as a church, we have thought that we could give a little here, give a little there, seek, seek the, the, the forbearance of the order around us, not through, um, but through, through giving giving, a, you know, letting a little incense here, giving a little bit there, and realizing how that builds up over time, and how then my own experience is not just the experience of, of a family that, in a vacuum, lost the faith, for a time at least, but a family that was simply going with what everyone else was doing, not just the secular world, but among our fellow believers. When my own group of friends at home we can almost all trace a very similar story. Some are converts, but the ones who aren't are almost all reverts because of our generation. It was an extremely common thing. And so the personal then, my personal narrative, in the same way that those who marshal their personal narrative of becoming more attached to the liberal order through parenthood, in the same way that that is itself a political statement, my personal narrative itself is attached to the political. The subtle impact of attachment in family life is related to political life and how whenever we become too attached to the order around us, we, become too, we believe too much that everything depends on the forbearance of the order around us rather than, and we begin to, it begins in subtle ways, just like in a family. 
It's not you give away the game in all, all at one moment, but in subtle ways begin to say, well, we're going we're gonna to mute this teaching. We're going we're gonna to pretend like the whole usury thing never happened because it's really not going, not, not going well in, this, in, the, in the present order of things. And then it really it doesn't take that much of a leap to go from we're going to pretend like St. Basil and St. John Chrysostom never said anything about property. Uh, it doesn't take a huge leap to go from that to, well, you know what, maybe we should um, be quiet about and, and maybe we should um, step back a little bit when it comes to issues of family and marriage and sexuality. These things are related. Um, this, the, 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 the walking away in some quarters from those, those teachings that are especially difficult right now for the culture uh, is related to the walking away, again, in subtle ways from other teachings earlier on. Um, and so I've seen how that turns out in my own life, and I've seen how that turns out in political life. I've seen how attachment accentuates in our own minds the cost of faithfulness and then raises them. And so when I think of my own family then, I want both my convictions about liberalism and, and, and the way we need to detach ourselves from, 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 from it I think of that, and I think of how I want to detach as much as possible uh, my own children from the type of worldly concerns that subtly corrode faithfulness. Now, there's a lot more work to be done in this topic. This is, this is the very baseline. My essay was meant to merely clear that first hurdle. There's so much more to talk about when it comes to prudence and detachment. How do you... How, I, I, as much as I talk about detachment and, 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 and not worrying about the future, I still have those education savings accounts and mutual funds and all that. Mm. How, do you, how do you balance prudence and this detachment? How do you, uh, when it comes to media, when it comes to finances, these are all huge topics for, for another time. But for now, I just want to say that um, by accentuating that virtue of detachment, which I think is so needed now, we can see how parenthood can actually further uh, can actually further our convictions about uh, about the um, the corruption of the prevailing order, rather than encourage us to cleave to it more tightly. So, first off, I want to thank the, my fellow panelists. Um, I read both of their articles uh, in preparation for this, and I would encourage you to purchase a copies outside and read their articles uh, because they are fantastic. Um, so. I did not write um, my own uh, article. I wrote a book review on this uh, aesthetically offensive uh, book, <laughs> The Great Transfer. This is really one of the ugliest covers I've ever seen. Um, and um, it is a book that was published more than 70 years ago. So give you some context. That was, it was published before Cheaper by the Dozen, the book was published. So only one of these has a movie version with a, a remake version with Steve Martin in it. So judge the book on that, if you will. But, um, so the question obviously is, why is this of any value? Um, and I think because this book is of value because uh, the issues of Polanyi's day um, are not that different from ours. Um, so three of them that are kind of, n not really mentioned, but kind of hinted at throughout the book are first, enormous inequality, social dislocation, and spiritual poverty. Um, and uh, none of them are uh, foreign to us, I would say, especially in our day and age. Um, but that provokes questions of, uh, first, what is the full extent of this damage? How has our system caused this? Why does it cause it? And what can be done? Um, 
So it's a pretty complex book, and I'm probably going to uh, dishonor it, but Polanyi is no longer with us, so you won't be upset. Um, but the thesis is controversial but simple. Essentially what he calls economic liberalism, which Jose defined for us very well, um, as a political economy led to the First and Second World War in ways both direct and indirect. Um, he doesn't say that it's the only cause, um, but it is an extremely important one. Um, and the story is essentially that economic liberalism is actually, we might think of it today as very prudent and realistic and practical, but it's actually radically utopian. Um, it imagines a market that's removed from society and that the two of them function separately and are managed separately. Um, and uh, he tells a story, essentially part one, about how, essentially where he just re re reiterates his thesis, and then part two where he tells the historical story of how this development occurred. Um, so I'm going to skip over part one because, again, it's really just kind of re reiterating uh, the thesis. But he essentially, uh, Polanyi starts with, it says that everything starts with the Industrial Revolution, uh, but not in the way you think. Um, the Industrial Revolution, um, it, it provided so much material abundance um, beyond what previous generations could even imagine, but also caused some enough social dislocation that in past decades would have uprooted and destroyed entire empires. Um, but it did this because it, it, and it also provided an opportunity for the market to be, or, or economies to be envisioned differently from society. So in the past, and, and really for all human history, the market and society, or economies and societies, are one and the same. They're embedded with one another. The, the economy is subservient to society because you ultimately pursue things towards social ends, right? That you, you know, you, he, he talks a lot about, he has all these different examples, he does a ton of research, but for example, that you um, might give to the poor um, because of the fact that these are also the people within your community and promoting the common good was an actual material reality that um, they could conceive of, uh, which thankfully Jose clarified for us. Um, but these were, that, that was um, sort of the, the assumed reality. Um, but the Industrial Revolution changed all of that. It changed where people lived, where people worked, um, uh, what people did, how they made uh, their living, um, all these things. And so um, the, the idea of the self-regulating market became more and more popular throughout the Industrial Revolution and the logical conclusions that it entailed also um, became a reality. And so one of the things that the Industrial Revolution or that the self-regulating market entails is a is a commodification of land, labor, and money. Um, but Polanyi points out that this is self-evidently false. Um, if a commodity is something that can be produced, uh, well, you cannot produce more land. We have a finite amount of that. You cannot produce really any more labor. You have 24 hours in a day. Um, and you can produce more money, but you can't produce more value. Um, and so in, in its, just, in its uh, infancy stage, economic liberalism is built on a fiction or, or, or really a lie. Um, and so as, uh, as this reality began to set in, I think generally around the 1830s, uh, it also, the uh, negative externalities, as you might say in economics terms, uh, began to set in and reaction began to arise to it. Um, obviously, a lot of people were not happy about having to move out to find jobs in a new factory and then that factory leaving and all of those people being left in destitution, um, something totally foreign to us today. Um, but um, at the same time, a number of intellectuals um, 
such as uh, Jeremy Bentham and uh, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, uh, he invented social Darwinism. What, anyways? I'm forgetting his name, but I'm sorry. yeah, Herbert Spencer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, began to defend economic liberalism and sort of formulate the doctrines of it, and began to argue that the issues that people were experiencing were not because of economic liberalism, but because it wasn't allowed to go far enough, mm -hmm. that it wasn't able to expand more. Um, again, an argument that we don't hear much of today. Um, but um, this this coincided with the rise of the nation state as a political body. And the nation state had power and means that, that had been unheard of for previous generations, in part because of the Industrial Revolution. And so while you have um, the, we have people rising up and things like democracy, you also have um, more specialization in government. You have bureaucracies, things like that. And so intellectuals kind of, that, that um, sort of proposed or were proponents of economic liberalism also pushed for it in policies and, and through other means. Um, and so, um, obviously, nation states uh, shockingly have a tendency to become very wary of their neighbors and their growing power and wealth and things like that. So this was inevitably going to lead to some sort of conflict. Um, but why, why, if it leads to World War I, does it then lead to World War II? And that's what part three focuses on. Um, so Polanyi points out that after World War I, um, the intellectuals of the day decided not to reconsider economic liberalism as a functional system or calls the market society, um, but to double down on it. Um, so instead, the issue was that not everyone was adhering to the gold standard. Not every nation was. Um, you know, nations needed to be put in more stringent uh, um, economic policies and sort of austerity. Again, all things that are totally foreign to us. Um, and eventually, um, this was all done while with a contrasting rise of democracy and ideas of popular government. Um, and obviously, these intellectuals were at best ambivalent because um, you know, popular government allows for intervention and messing up the market society. Um, so ironically, out of fear of that intervention, uh, took the reins of power and used that mm -hmm. intervention to uh, prevent popular government and democracy such that uh, after the Great Depression, democracy and popular government was, did not have the power to stop fascism. Um, so essentially, uh, after, the, after his sort of historical exploration, Polanyi sees essentially the possibility of a modern political economy on a spectrum where at one end you have uh, economic liberalism, which has ultimately as its end goal the individual. Um, at the other end was the, uh, the 1930 solution of fascism, uh, which sees the state as the final uh, or the ultimate goal, um, the end all be all. Um, and so his solution is to um, go back to a thinker that he mentions uh, often named Robert Owen, who was a English social thinker who proposed democratic socialism, which was a uh, sort of midpoint um, that sort of recognized that that um, the world that we existed in today, but also um, recognized the reality of a society. This market society denied that society existed. Um, but the ultimate problem with Polanyi's uh, theory is that it's, um, again, it sits on the spectrum, um, right? So you have the dem democratic socialism right in the middle, um, essentially walking a tightrope walk. So inevitably, it's probably going to start to lean one way or the other and then tumble into either fascism or economic liberalism and history repeats itself um, ad infinitum. And so, uh, and interestingly, Polanyi at two different points in the book 
sort of implicitly or explicitly rejects Christianity as a solution. And um, this is where I took issue with Polanyi because I thought the three issues that Polanyi has is he doesn't have a way of solving the tension between the individual and the society. Um, he has a really mal, uh, uh, poorly developed vision of work or vocation. Um, and then he also uh, does not have, I'm forgetting my nap, um, an understanding of what, if, if society is not either towards the individual or towards the state, what end society is ultimately directed towards. Mm -hmm. um, and Christianity solves that dilemma first off by uh, the first dilemma of the tension between the individual society with Christ's own teaching, right? That Christ called the political and social and religious forces of his day to account, but also had the radical concept of loving your neighbor. Um, the love for neighbor is the, the um, the key ethic behind any idea or any possibility of the common good, right, of a society of peace, as Jose uh, aptly put it. Um, and so Christ's teachings are necessary for that to function, for that tension to be resolved. Um, Christianity also provides a better understanding of the vocation, that we are image bearers and we have our duty as creation care, creation maintenance. Um, uh, uh, economic liberalism essentially has the idea that either you know you're making it for your profit and to increase your own private property, and fascism essentially like you're doing all your work towards the end of a successful state. Um, but Christianity fights both of those tendencies, where ultimately all your work is directed towards glorifying God, um, and that leads into uh, the last point, which is that Christianity orders society properly towards the end of glorifying God, um, as as Jose put it well, uh, because. Ultimately, economic liberalism is an idolatry of the individual, and fascism is an idolatry of the state. Um, but Christianity offers a way forward towards ordering the virtues and ordering society such that it is directed towards God. Um, so again, this is just a sort of basic uh, summary of things. I encourage you to read his work yourself, but um, that was that's the basic idea of the Great Transformation. So I'm sensitive to the fact that we're rapidly running low on time, so I'm just going to ask one question, and I ask you to keep your answers short, and then we will go to the audience for any questions, for probably one or two questions before we want to wrap up. So Brandon's piece actually has already been put up on our website, and when it was published, there was uh, a little bit of Twitter controversy about it. And the question, the question that was raised for Brandon's piece, which is kind of I want to ask more broadly to everyone on this panel, is what is the practical uh, implications of this? So. Jose talks about, you talk about um, building a society of peace. What are some things concretely that that might look like for us, either in our thinking, our daily lives, or also thinking about maybe concrete political or economic um, changes? And then Brandon, talking about your piece about parenting and the need, the need to protect your kids from attachment, what are some concrete things that uh, you can do, you have done, or you, sh or you think parents should do in order to prevent that? And um, I just wanted to throw in this one quote as a as a sort of something to consider perhaps in your, and you, also Josh, you can weigh in on this as, as we go through. Um, this is, so we, also, we have an interview on the issue with, with uh, Roth Dal Ross Dalpit, and we ask him about liberalism and critique, critiques of liberalism. And uh, he says that he's not sure whether he's drawn to or tempted by it, but his, um, one of the things he says in his response is, see if I can find the exact quote here. In general, the, the trend the last time there was a strongly anti-liberal Christian politics it didn't build anything that lasted as an alternative, and it ended up being connected to some regimes that we rightly consider pretty, that we rightly consider basically barbaric. So that's a challenge for the new Christian critics of liberalism, 
and it can't just be hand waved away. He goes on to specify how. But so that's also something to consider in in your responses. So if you could just do a brief, one or two minutes. I know that's a lot to cover more than two minutes, but as, as, brief, as brief as you can. Design uh, society has you. And then yeah, solve all our problems in two minutes, yeah. and then we will go to to Q and A. Okay, so, so the first thing that I want to note is that our society is incredibly barbaric, and we're just used to it. So, so uh, you know, we lose something like 3,000 lives a minute, a, a death, a heartbeat out of abortion, and we're just used to it. You know, bump, 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 globally, right? Uh, in America, it's something like 1.3 million a year. Okay, this is not a healthy society. This is not, this is not a society that's doing well. Okay, so that's the first thing to emphasize is that we might look back at these 20th century, which are bad, and I don't identify with, and I don't propose as models, but our society is not doing well. So in our thinking, we need to, we need to you know, maybe stop being so scared of the past that we stop looking at the horrors that confront us today. You know, um, no, I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> that. That's too controversial, so I won't say that. Um, there are a lot of horrors happening to a lot of people that aren't just the unborn, okay? Um, you can read about it in the paper. Um, as far as, as, far as um, practical considerations, um, you know, this project of thinking through the liberal order and how to respond to it, I think of as just starting. I have some criticisms of, for example, the Benedict Option. I don't think it's perfect. Um, I am deeply unsettled personally as to what exactly the best route forward is for a number of reasons. So I won't personally commit to you should do this, you should do that, except anyone who can go to the monastery. That's the best option, okay? What did, what did I identify? I identified a demon of lust, I identified a demon of violence, and I identified a demon of greed. How do you combat that except through the evangelical councils, okay? That was the best option, it is the best option, Okay, that's for everyone else. I don't know, not yet, but but you know, for people who still can go, you know, it's just do it. Um, what I will say is that when we talk about a, a doubtless very different Saint Benedict, it's instructive to recognize that Saint Benedict lived in a specific time in a specific place and responded to specific conditions. So too, Saints Dominic and Saint Francis. Okay. St. Benedict lived in an agrarian society and developed a way of interacting, bringing the gospel to people who lived in an agrarian time. Saints Dominic and St. Francis were mendicants, right? We had cities, okay? The, the demands of the society were different. So when we talk about, when we think about a doubtless very different St. Benedict, we have to, ha I think, I, this contribution of this essay, maybe, we have to understand our society so we can bring the gospel to it. Mm. So when we're thinking about a doubtless very different St. Benedict, it's with, with respect to the conditions today that we're thinking. We're not thinking we're bringing back St. Benedict out of the past and plopping, plopping him down today. However great the Benedicts are now, Benedictines are now, right? It's what's the correct response in our time to our place. So I wanted yeah. to make that comment. That's, mm. that's what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to speak too much about um, spe anything specific with regard to parenting for a couple reasons. One, my eldest is only four, and so I have a lot of time to figure things out, and I certainly have no hard and fast answers. Second of all, parenting is very much about what works for your own children, and, and this prudent 
parenting is the school of prudence. Um, every moment you are presented with competing goods and you have to choose between or among them and it's, uh, that's the most harrowing thing in some ways in any event. A couple things that do come to mind that we are trying to, to do as a family uh, and then one thing, even bigger thing, I think even more important thing we're trying to do outside the family. One just simple thing when it comes to toys, just like encouraging, uh, encouraging the, the kids to choose toys to give away uh, on a regular basis. Um, like swapping out toys and making sure they aren't just so used to being, first of all, it helps us be not insane to not have toys everywhere, but also um, just this idea of, of at a young age having them get used to the idea of giving away things that they like um, for people who, who need them more than they do. Um, the one another idea is, is while of course having some things, even some toys that are kept as as personal possessions, things that really are identified as as your own personal possession, uh, as much as possible, we'd like the we really want to build a, a culture in which the family is a communal institution where most things, almost the vast majority of things, are shared uh, and shared without a second thought. It shouldn't even. It shouldn't seem weird to share. It should be the norm. So much of all of this is making what is considered the norm in society seem weird within the family, um, <clears throat> seem like the exception to the rule. But the, the thing I really want to talk about, um, and I'll, I'll, I will try to keep it very brief, um, is that we have been very fortunate to have made several very good friends, and several of whom now live in our neighborhood. And so I think a lot about hospitality and how uh, in my house growing up, and I don't say this to suggest that there was anything particularly pernicious about my family. It's not, not the case at all. I think it was very normal that we didn't have people over very often. And when people came over, it was a big deal. And we had to get everything cleaned up. And it was kind of stressful for everybody involved. Um, even when it was family who was coming over. In fact, especially when it was family was coming over. And so, uh, and so now living near friends and having friends who are over all the time, uh, this... First of all, you can never get the house perfectly clean all the time, and neither can the friends, and you get used to it. You get used to seeing other people as they live, and you don't worry so much about it. You don't worry about constantly presenting perfection to everybody because you have people who, first of all, don't care, and second of all, are in it with you. They understand, and you build, you build up this kind of immunity over time to, this, to, to constantly worrying. You're never, never going to, you know, when, certainly when a, a new person's coming over, you're going to get the house a little bit tidy, but, you know, um, but I, I think this, this idea of hospitality, of always giving and taking, always, and, 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 without, and without constant ex expectation of being paid back. And so, you know, when, when a family is going through a hard time, something as, 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 something as difficult as a, as a, as a difficult um, pregnancy or, or a sick infant or something as seemingly mundane as a burst pipe, it was very cold over the past two weeks back home, um, and you bring a meal. And it's not expected that anything will be given back, but presumably at some point you're going to need something or you're going to be going through a hard time. You won't need something, but something would be nice, and it would just, whether it's a meal or, or just a visit or something else, whatever is needed at the time. I think this constant give and take, where you are not counting the cost, where you are not expecting anything concrete in return, we're not expecting anything at all in return, that, I think, is one of the most subversive things that we can do in a culture that's always calculating, that's always looking for the return, that's always looking for the quid pro quo. And I think that it teaches everyone involved, not just the kids, it teaches the parents the kind of detachment 
uh, from worldliness, from worldly things, that is um, that in the same way attachment in little things builds up to bigger things, I think that detachment in the little things of everyday life builds up into bigger things. I'll just quickly say, as a provisional measure, one of the things that I've noticed uh, that uh, people really like in a, as our society today is comforts. Um, so any way that you can um, reasonably sacrifice comforts, like have a roommate, you know, uh, <laughs> share a bathroom, uh, you know, go to a meal with someone, uh, things that, that um, you know, might seem that we don't like to do nowadays are the little steps that can maybe lead towards, as, as Brandon said, the little detachments that can lead uh, towards a uh, undoing of the order, I guess. <laughs> so we're going to take questions now. One question, sorry. You can ask, <laughs> you can ask people them questions afterwards uh, when we're in the reception. My question is for you, Jose. So your argument seems to depend, but a great faith in the power of natural law not simply just to give us a thin conception of the common good, but a very thick conception of the common good. Yeah. But then in your comment about the monastery, you said the only way to overcome lust, greed, and so on was through this very profound encounter with supernatural grace. Okay. So my, my question for you is, um, is there a danger that we, in your argument, that you are overstating the power of natural law to shape society and that there is potential that that emphasis on the power of reason, in fact, mimics the hubris that one saw in liberalism, in communism, in scientism, and many of the utopian projects of the 20th century? Good, interesting. I like your question. Um, it's a good question. Um, so I only want to emphasize the natural law in this respect because I believe very strongly that against an age that has lost faith in the universality of the natural law, in its writtenness in every human heart, not just the Christian heart, but every human heart, it's very important to me to emphasize that not just in ethical matters, but also political ones, that these truths are in principle accessible. Um, that doesn't mean that they're known. As we all know, there are a lot of truths of the natural law that are quite heavily contested by people these days. Okay, um, So I wouldn't characterize it as a rationalist um, paradigm, at least unless the teaching of the church is rationalist, right? Because the church also teaches this. I mean, you can read in the in the, uh, in the uh, Acts of the First Vatican Council, there's, in principle, God is knowable by natural reason, right? We've always thought like this. Um, now, that doesn't mean that God is known through natural reason. Usually, the truths of ethics are known through supernatural grace, right? For most people, we know it through, we encounter it through the Ten Commandments. We encounter it through Scripture, right? Um, so the only reason that I want to point to this universality is sort of an arcane distinction that in principle um, these things could be known and in principle are accessible. That doesn't mean that they are. And you know, sort of in our praxis, our practice, we are going to have to deal with the fact that there's going to be a lot of resistance for these truths of the natural law from people who aren't Christian. But I also think that there's hope. I mean, I think that there's a lot more acknowledgement of the truths of the natural law among uh, what we might call people of the book, right? The Abrahamic faiths, right? That there's a, that there's a common understanding there. That there's a common recognition of at least the truths of the natural law in many respects. Um, so, does that answer that question? Are you happy with that answer? Yeah. 
Um, I, I, he's not happy he can, he can talk to you. I, I, think now <laughs> I should go like two chairs for liberalism instead of three. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, no, I, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the idea that we do want to insist against Burke that um, you can know things through reason, um, but that doesn't mean that we're John Dewey. Okay. <laughs> okay, thanks everyone for coming.